Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mom Manual, Tara Williams. I have another amazing guest with you today. Deb Flashingberg is the founder and director of Prenatal Yoga Center in New York City. She is also a Lamaze childbirth educator and a mom of two. She is going to go over some super fun pregnancy, yoga, all the things for us today. Deb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. I have been on this crazy yoga journey, not a prenatal yoga yoga journey, but I'm super into yoga right now. And I just feel like it is relaxing me and centering me and doing all the good things. So I wish I was doing this when I was pregnant because that was, I felt, I don't know if I want to say chaotic, but my emotions were up and down all the time. I needed oh, yeah, to- those hormones can really whoo, up and down, up and down. So Deb, tell us how you got into this, your background. Sure. So I started um, as a musical theater performer and somebody along the way, a choreographer I was working with introduced me to yoga. And I soon just, it started to become a bit of a battle between do I go to ballet class or do I go to yoga? And eventually yoga went out. And after doing a certain style of yoga, Bikram specifically, I realized that was not my thing. Hmm. So I quickly transitioned to prenatal yoga and then like the opposite of Bikram. I was doing vinyasa, I was doing Iyengar, but after doing prenatal yoga for maybe after teaching it for maybe a year, I had a student who was doing a fellowship at one of the New York hospitals asked me if I wanted to attend some births because she was doing her OB rotation and I was in my 20s and none of my friends were having kids because we were all performers. And when I went to witness some live births, I was really shocked by what I saw. Mm. The hospital system, again, I have the utmost respect for medicine, but I was really blown away by how medicalized birth was because I hadn't really understood that. And that just fueled me to become a doula and then Lamaze teacher and just gather my knowledge. And this was like 21 years ago. So through all that time, I've just- What year (laughs) were you in that you were invited to go into births? (laughs) Yeah. Not, not last week. I mean, except as a doula, but like, so this was 2002 or 2003, but she told everyone as a med student. So she put me in scrubs and told everyone as a med student. Good old days, right? Yeah. So and the funny thing was I actually scrubbed in for a C-section and they Gosh. had somebody, I know I didn't last very long, but they had somebody like taking notes of all the doctors. Like, I guess that's, you know, I didn't know that. And they asked my name and I said it and I saw her write it down. Dr. Flaschenberg. I'm like, no, 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 no. Erase that. I should not have any official record of me being anywhere around here, but it was a turning point because it really it inspired me and lit a fire under supporting people and really advocating for them during birth. So you were doing prenatal yoga before kids, before you had been pregnant. Why 
And going back to the beginning, you mentioned a few different types of yoga. So for the non-yogi, can you just describe kind of the differences? Oh, yeah. So Bikram, okay. If you look at listeners, look him up. He's got got the past. Um, It's a very strict, it's a it's a monologue that the teacher does. I believe it was 26 poses and two pranayamas. And it's very like you follow this monologue. Mm-hmm. It, it really didn't leave a lot of room for interpretation or connect. I found connecting to the students. Like you can't go in and be like, how do you feel? What do you want to work on? It's um, a set thing. Yeah. And then I shifted to what's called vinyasa, which mm-hmm. coming from a dance background felt really good. It's a lot of moving and breathing together, linking the poses, and it feels very dancey. And I was working with a teacher named Shiva Ray, who's just very flowy. So Mm -hmm. I really connect with that. And then I moved into this style called Iyengar, which Mm -hmm. is very alignment oriented and really intelligent on their sequencing. Like everything makes sense. So that just, that kind of worked for my dancey flow yet type A personality. And I haven't looked back and I, I absolutely love it. I love that. I, I actually do a vinyasa. So that that's the only one I'm really familiar with. Um, but it, it, what I love, what I love about yoga, and I think I would have appreciated this even more while being pregnant. It's such a good workout and you get so much strength, but you don't feel like you're working out. If that makes sense. Sometimes my muscles feel <laughs> there's still oh, even oh. time. Let me, let me contrast that. So I also go to, it's a weightlifting class where yes. we, it's like now push now go like, like I totally hear what you're saying you, and you're, you're pushing and your muscles are fatiguing and it's like this adrenaline, it's high intensity where yoga, like, yes, it's hard. And like, yes, your leg is going to shake sometimes, but I think it's the mindfulness where it's just I totally agree, like go through it and it feels easy, but not. And then you finish. And the next day, like, I remember the first time I did it, I was like, oh, that was so easy. And the next day I was like, wow, I'm actually sore. Like I'm surprised I'm sore. I do one now that they actually incorporate weights into, I forget exactly what they call it, but it's, I know it's a program. And so there's like some weight and like a cardio part. And I love that because it's the best of both worlds where you get a little bit of this kind of like more traditional workout with the yoga and the stretching. But if anybody doesn't do yoga, I am telling you it. I feel like it's changed my life. Yeah. And it's, it is definitely a mindfulness practice because I jump on my Peloton every morning and I have to say as much as I like how I feel after, I don't love being on the bike. Like I know some people do. I love riding outside, but it's a workout. And when I'm doing yoga, I'm not waiting for it to end. So I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to jump in and you're going to go through five questions to ask your provider. And this is before birth. Yes, because you want to make sure you're aligned with mm-hmm. your care provider. Because one thing I was seeing happen a lot with my students is they would go to their 36 week checkup and then start to have what they call like the big talk of like, what are some of your birth ideas? What's your birth plan? And if they hadn't had some conversation ahead of time, they might find that what they were looking for in support was not how their doctor practiced mm-hmm. and they're not going to convince their doctor to practice any other way. So we want people to have this thought process and conversation beforehand. So I'm going to go through five questions, but one thing, if you're pregnant or you're thinking about becoming pregnant before you even get to these questions, you have to ask yourself before you present the questions to your doctor, or midwife, you have to ask yourself, what are the answers you want to hear? So you have to really put some thought in. So side note, I remember I did something similar when we were interviewing midwives 
And Mm -hmm. I had very specific answers, what I needed them to say so I could feel safe. Like one of them, I love the midwife, but when I asked her what she does about postpartum hemorrhaging, Mm -hmm. because I chose home births, she's like, well, I have some herbs. And in my head, I'm like, "Eh, that's not the answer. So Mm -hmm. some people would be like, oh, herbs, that's great. I wanted to hear I am massaging your uterus and I'm getting Pitocin and someone's on the, on, on, you know, 911. Like I needed to, that was my safety. So right. the, who, like when we're having this conversation, the, the person asking the pregnant person needs to think, what are the answers I need to hear? So I feel safe. So that's the first step of the homework. What right. do they want to hear? So then once they figure that out, they need to ask the care provider, what is their birth philosophy? So are they more the midwifery mindset or more the pathological typical OB? And I put that in quotes because some OBs practice more in the midwifery, which is more the wait and see, a little bit more trust in the innate process of birth and more your traditional OB. And it's a little bit more emphasizing the pathological possibilities of this may happen So we're going to do this in prevention instead of saying, let's just wait and see how your body responds. Mm -hmm. So you need to think what kind of philosophy, what kind of care do I want? As you're saying this, I'm like, how do you even know that though? (laughs) Like, how do you know what you want as a, as a person? Yes. You have to think about that. Do I innately trust that if given the time and the space that my body knows how to open and my baby knows how to be birthed. And if there's a problem, I trust my care provider. I'm not asking you to like just go in a field and squat. I'm saying like, do I trust that my care provider trusts my body? And if a problem comes up, they're going to care for it. Or do I want to be more managed? Do Mm. I want to have possibly more interventions? Would that make me feel safe? So you have to ask themselves, what makes me feel safe? And I'm not asking about home or birth center or hospital first, just who do I want? And also how involved do they want their care provider? And really what kind of, I guess, management is the main thing I tend to think of because OBs, the typical path does tend to be a bit more managed care. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, it's the individual has to decide what they're comfortable doing. And I've had some students that say like, I want every bell and whistle there is because I'm going to feel safe. And then I have some students saying, I really want to have as little intervention as possible. And if I need it, how great that we have it available. Right. And and when you go back, I just want to make sure everyone who's listening is kind of on the same page. We're talking about a care provider. Is that exclusively OBGYN or are you talking about like a doula? Like No, I'm talking about the medical provider. So that's either a midwife or an OBGYN. Doulas should not be delivering babies. (laughs) That is not in our scope of practice. Although you were a doctor the one day, so maybe. (laughs) Yeah. My little pretend med student. Yes. And then when you're talking about students, you're talking about actually your yoga students, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I keep saying student. Yeah. I'm not a great school teacher. So I talk student because I lead a yoga school. So I think about my yoga, my prenatal yoga students. And if we step back, like you, you're talking about stuff that a little bit makes sense to me. And I have a podcast that I talk about pregnancy and birth and I have four kids, but for someone who's listening, that might be first time mom, like hasn't done research, hasn't talked to it, doesn't even know what a doula is or a midwife, like doesn't know these, just the 
basic where they don't have somebody like yourself that is a prenatal yoga. And they're talking with the word that comes to my mind is enlightened, but really just educated people. Mm-hmm. Like do you have a very first place to start. Not trying to tap myself on my back, but I've got a podcast that's all about this called Yoga Birth Babies. Girl, fuck so, right now. What is the podcast? Tell everyone. It is, it is called Yoga Birth Babies, and okay. we have over 300 episodes, and we cover what is a doula, what is a midwife, you know, so much of this. So if someone is brand new to this, because that's right, if they're if they don't know what they're feeling safe with, they do it. They do need to educate themselves to yeah. think. Okay, because I can't tell you how many times people will say, oh, you're a doula. Is that like a midwife? It's like saying to someone, oh, you're a yoga teacher. Do you teach Pilates? I'm like, no, they're very different things. I think about myself. I had my first daughter, my oldest child in 2012. That was definitely pre, I would call it pre-Instagram. Facebook was around, but not in the way that it is today. So really social media was just beginning. So there weren't these chat groups, there weren't resources, there weren't like, I remember I joined a local mother's group, but it just, it was not at the, the information was not as readily available. Right. I bought the, what to expect when you're expecting book and I would just flip through it. But I remember talking, I I had never heard of a doula or a midwife that wasn't even on my radar. It was just, I remember at the time they said, do you want a epidural or not? Would you want to use, at the time, I think they still use the suction or forceps, episiotomy. It was like these few different things. And I said like, you know, yes on this and no on that. And like, that was it. There was no thought of, do you want to have more of a natural birth or like the thought of a home birth? I'm like, that's something a celebrity in LA does. Like that was not even on my radar of a possibility for a person like me. Like it just wasn't. So I know that now we've come so far right? Um, In terms of just sharing of the knowledge, right? The knowledge has been there, but you had to seek it out in different ways. So your podcast, amazing. Is there any other, like what to expect when you're expecting book? Is there just kind of a, a there is a book. One of my favorites, I'm going to plug my friend, Britta Bushnell. She has an amazing book called Transformed by Birth, and it covers basic birth information, And it's just a fantastic book. Also covering some of the emotional side of moving into parenthood. So I'm going to plug Britta's book because we actually have it as part of our teacher training because I think it is such a great birth book. And we, for anyone who's listening and scribbling notes, we'll we'll put the podcast, we'll put the book. This will all be in the show notes. So you can click on it after. Um, All right, Deb, keep, keep going through our questions. All right. So once they figured out their philosophy and who they want, then we can go to how aggressively does your care provider manage your care? So let's talk about what do I even mean by that? So if you're a low risk, healthy person, You can talk openly about various birth options, such as do you need full-time external fetal heart rate monitoring or, Mm. and that's where they're measuring the baby's heart rate and the often, how often you have contractions. Now, if someone is like, oh yes, don't I always want to have the baby's heart rate measured? Well, data actually shows an ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology actually says that you're going to have more false positive problems with full-time as opposed to intermittent. So that's what the World Health Organization also says. And this is if you're not having an epidural at the moment or not having Pitocin, but if you're just laboring, do you need full-time monitoring? Another and and that, that's that big strap. That, that I, big band, yeah, around yes, your belly. That's so uncomfortable and digs into your stomach. Yep. Yeah. And then you can also talk things like, what about 
non-traditional pushing positions. So if we look at the physiology of the body, being flat on your back doesn't really allow your pelvis to open. So is your care provider open to sideline, which could absolutely do with an epidural. You can go on your side. What about maybe getting an all fours or even standing or using a peanut ball? So are they open to some non-traditional ways that work more with your body? I've worked when I was a doula with some care providers that will say, you can start pushing however you want, but when it's time to actually deliver the baby, I want you on your back. And then I had some that said, as long as I can see and get there. And I had somebody literally get on their knees because my client was standing and help deliver. So again, what are you as the birthing person needing for support? Another thing that we, yeah, of course. Why would anybody want to stand while they're having the baby? Well, you can use gravity. You can get your legs in different positions and flat on your back. Your pelvis can open better. Mm -hmm. So if you're laying on your back, your sacrum, this little triangular bone in the pelvis, it moves, it gets out of the way. So if you're flat on the back, you're not going to be able to, it's not going to move. So standing, you can pull on something, you can bear down a little bit easier and your pelvis, the bones can widen. So you're making more space your baby. Now I say this, but I did not birth standing. Um, but (laughs) I'm just imagining I have a visual and I imagine the baby like falling and I'm trying to catch the baby and the baby like, well, they don't fall out that quickly. I mean, the head's born, then the shoulder, then the other shoulder. Spit out, but somebody's there riding the whole way. Uh, See, here's the, here's the thing, Deb. I'm a mom of four and that's my visual. So can you imagine someone who's never had a baby? Like I birthed four children and I still thought, but the baby fall out. <laughs> the baby's not going to fall out. No, no. And because someone's usually there. I mean, have you like, have I heard of, you know, somebody maybe walking into actually there, if people are interested there, I've seen Instagram videos where someone's literally standing there. They've got sweatpants on, they birth their baby. They open the sweatpants and pull the baby out. I know. So look that up. I cannot remember what account it is, but I'm sure if somebody puts in Instagram or just online, like the baby born part. in pants, they're like, yeah, this, this sweatpants baby. Hold on, hold sure. on. Is, is that a one-off or is that a strategy? No, I think that was because the baby came so quickly. Oh. No, I'm not advocating. So thank you. No, I'm not advocating to <laughs> arrive at the hospital with a baby in your pants. So you're <laughs> here we go. We're not, we're not that evolved quite yet. Maybe in like (laughs) years, who knows? Who knows? All right. So then question number three for your care provider is what kind of schedule will you be on? So things like how long can you labor before Pitocin, which is something that speeds your labor up? How long can you labor if your water's broken, but your contractions haven't started? How long can you labor in general? You might hear people say, oh, you know, you've been laboring a long time. I don't know. I think, you know, your labor is not going to progress and they call that failure to progress. How long can you push for? How long can you labor at home before your care provider wants you in the hospital or birth center? So again, a lot of this has to do with your comfort level. So if you're someone that doesn't want a lot of interventions, you may want to stay at home more. If you want to have a lot of space to let your body open and a lot of space to push however you need to, you may want to hear from your care provider, as long as you and baby are doing well and there's no fever, there's no time restriction. Or you might hear, 
three hours is how, how much I'm comfortable with you pushing. So again, it goes back to not that there's a right or wrong answer. It's what do you as the pregnant person need to hear? Today's episode was brought to you by Dreamland Baby. I want to introduce you to a product that hundreds of thousands of parents use to help their baby sleep, the Dreamland Baby Weighted Sleep Sack. Hi, I'm Tara Williams, host of the Mom Manual and founder of Dreamland Baby. When my son Luke was six months old, he was still waking up every hour and a half. I was completely exhausted, frustrated, and at my wit's end. Sound familiar? My solution to create a gently weighted sleep sack that babies can safely wear to help them feel calm, fall asleep faster, and stay asleep longer. The award-winning doctor-approved Dream Weighted Sleep Sack and Swaddle features our proprietary CoverCom technology, evenly distributed weight from your baby's shoulders to toes to help naturally reduce stress and allow your little one to feel relaxed and sleep soundly. If you're struggling to get your baby to sleep for longer stretches and go down easier, you're not alone. This product was a game changer for my son and can be for your family too. And right now we've got a special discount exclusive to mom manual listeners. Use code MOMMANUAL15 at checkout to get 15% off site-wide. Isn't it time for you to invest in rest? The fourth one is what are the statistics or rates of the practice? So what is their C-section rate? What's their induction rate? What's the episiotomy rate? How often are they using forceps in vacuum? And if you're a low-risk person and you're practicing, if you're going to a high-risk care provider, they're going to treat you that way because that's how they practice. So if you are not wanting to have a C-section, but your practice has a 60% C-section rate, that's that's telling you something, or you don't want to have an induction, or you don't want to use Pitocin, but 80% of the people use Pitocin, that's the synthetic hormone that stimulates your contractions, then you want to hear want to hear those statistics because it's going to give you a sense of what's ahead. And, and they'll give those to you. They won't say this is confidential information. Oh, no. The hospitals are legally supposed to be able to provide that. So you ask the hospital or you ask the- Both. Doctor. You should ask both. That is super interesting. I, again, this is so eye-opening to me um, because I, like my practice, I know for sure they're like, oh, we own, but again, 2012, we give everybody episiotomy. I think they don't do those anymore, right? I hope not. (laughs) That's not, that's a little, even for 2012, that's very dated to give everyone episiotomy. Oh, really? Well, I think they said like, you know, almost everybody, not, not of course a blanket statement, but it it was like, yeah, like most first time moms just get it. And it's, you know, we can, whatever. And so I remember thinking like, oh, that's not really something I want, but okay. Everybody gets it. Um, and, and just backing up a little bit to these questions, you know, I felt like for me, my insurance only covered like a few people. So it, it was, you know, unless I wanted to go drive 45 minutes or something, I didn't feel like I had a lot of options. So when people are going and they're kind of asking these questions and I mean, is this like before you're pregnant? Is this when you first get pregnant? It'd be nice to try to have these conversations to think about what you want before you're pregnant and then try in your first trimester or early second trimester to have these conversations. So one thing I do know is after at least the insurance and the care providers I've worked with here in New York, 
My own doctor told me that after 22 weeks, insurance payout is not as much. So you're not likely to get a care provider that wants to take you after 22 weeks. Mm -hmm. So you want to have these conversations before. And you also said something that I want to address that it is absolutely a privilege to be able to choose your care provider. That Mm -hmm. is not something everybody can do. It can be limited for a variety of reasons. So if you can't, First of all, I think you might you should ask these questions, whether you have the option to change care providers, because at least then you're going to know what to expect. You're going right. to have, you know, your your expectations will be, okay, they're not, they're not keen on this, they are keen on that. And then if you do have those expectations conversations, you can see where there is wiggle room. Now, all these things I'm saying is, are things that they can look up because they're evidence-based. You could look at American Obstetrics, ACOG, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and be like, this is what ACOG says. They actually say for a first-time parent with an epidural, I should have these amount of hours. Mm -hmm. And so if you're getting pushback, like three hours is what I do, you can say, well, that's not actually medically based. That's not what your supporting body of knowledge Mm -hmm. of, you know, your supporting governing body of, you know, obstetrics is supporting. So- there could be a little bit of wiggle room. I think it's how one says it because you also don't want to have a tumultuous relationship with your right, care provider. Right, right, where it's super contentious and then, you know, th- that doctor's out of town on your birth weekend or something. Yeah, you don't want to have like a headbutting situation during your birth. So asking these questions will at least give you a baseline of what you're working with, you know, what they're expecting of you, what you expect of them. And then maybe there's some room for negotiation if you're really unable to switch care providers. And this is where a doula, again, doulas are not coming in with a superhero cape. They're not the magic wand, but they could highlight or ask you if the So say the care provider or the nurse is like, oh, we're going to start Pitocin. The doula could say, hey, so-and-so, what do you think of, you know, to the the birthing person, hey, Jane, what do you think about having Pitocin? And then that could spark the person say, oh, I'd like a moment to think about this, or I'd like some more information. So again, the doula is not hopefully causing confrontation, but they can highlight time to think and ask questions. And also bring up that if baby's okay and the parent's okay, can they have more time before making decisions? Right. And I, and, and again, going back to a doula, like I still, I think sometimes am under the impression that it's, it's a privilege for the wealthy almost, right? Like it's not the normal person like me that gets the doula. Is no, that- I don't, I don't think that's true. I was a doula to many normal folks. And <laughs> I also know, I mean, no celebrities, almost yeah. hired by a celebrity, but no celebrities. And I know there are now doula programs that are in hospitals where you don't need the doula necessarily ahead of time, but they're there. It's different than a nurse because the nurse is, you know, they're tracking everything that's going into the body. They're covering the medical side. A doula should have no medical say. They're, they're not there to dictate anything medical. They can offer emotional support, physical support, getting their hands on, informational support. I know that there are doula organizations that have sliding scales. I know there's doula organizations that are going into underserved communities. So it's definitely evolved from when I first headed into that world in the early 2000s, which is great to see. 
Yeah, no, that that's amazing. So, so it may be affordable for everybody. Yeah. And newer doulas, like when I first started off, I only charged a couple hundred dollars because I didn't have, I think in my first three births I did for free because I had no training. No. I mean, I had a weekend training, but I had no experience going in. So I was learning on the job and I was really, really, my prices were very low until I got more and more experience. And then I charged that way. So you could have, and then I had a mentor because I was new. I wanted to make sure because I was so new, I needed somebody that helped me. So there are affordable, there are affordable doulas. And I, I think sometimes we just don't ask, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that is great information. And I think even with you on your first birth, zero knowledge, you're still going to be way more knowledgeable than that mom. Who's never had a baby before. Yeah. Because I had a a little training, like I had a big, I think it was like a three day weekend training, but I had, I, it's a learn on the job kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. One other question. So where I had my, um, two of my kids, they did a, there were, there were three providers. So the concept and the theory in the office was that you will meet with all three of us, but then you're guaranteed to have one of us in your birth. And it's like whoever was going to be on call that weekend or or day, whatever it was. And so that I actually, I liked for my schedule because at the time I was traveling for work. So I didn't want to say, okay, that, you know, they only see patients on Wednesdays and Thursdays because my schedule was all over the place. So that worked great. I'm like, okay, put me on any day, anytime, like didn't matter because I was seeing different people. And I liked the thought of at least having a familiar face. There was one out of the three that I like had hoped for because I liked him the most and, you know, whoever showed up was going to be fine. But when you go into something like that and you're asking these questions, do you ask all three of them? Do they all have the same? That is such a good question. No, they don't, which is so interesting that I've seen practices and you would think if you're grouped together with someone, you would be like-minded, but not always. So what I always suggested is usually you have a primary doctor that's your like general OBGYN and that you're seeing for most of your visits until you're rotating through. So whoever you resonate with or is your primary doctor, I always recommend that my clients would go in with their birth plan. And now when I say birth plan, it's not like I'm controlling it. This has to be my birth plan. It's more like birth preferences. So if you're saying something like, I'd like intermittent monitoring and you're a healthy person that that works, I would have the care provider sign off on it. So then one goes in your chart, one you can take the hospital, one goes in your hospital bag. So if you're meeting with Dr. Whoever, who you haven't seen or worked with before, and they're like, oh, this is how I do. You say, actually, I spoke with my my main doctor and we agreed because I'm a healthy, low-risk person that these things can be followed. So I think that's a way of just sharing your thoughts instead of having this long conversation with each of them. And are you seeing that? I know healthcare is changing so much and and in the like pediatric space, for example, you used to have a lot of solo practitioners and now they're all grouped into these kind of Kaisers or different pods. Are you seeing that in pediatrics as well, that the OBGYN- In obstetrics? In New York City, there's a small handful of solo, but most of them are at least partnered. And if not three, four, five, six, eight people per practice, it's- I, I, off the top of my head, I have two that are solo and the rest are grouped together. It's exhausting. It's a hard, I mean, just when I was a doula, it was, you know, you never knew when the baby's coming. So to be a solo, you're constantly on call and that's, that's a hard life. And then for those solos or even 
doubles. They sometimes go on vacation, right? So then are you just left hanging or what happened? No, I would assume. So the solo, they have backups. So one of them that I knew, she had another doctors or backup. So no, you're not just left hanging. That would be awful. Because also because a lot of the solos don't yeah. take insurance. So you're paying out of pocket. So you're hoping you're getting uh-huh. someone, you're not just showing up. But there's one more question to put on our five questions. And the last one is when does your care provider arrive at the hospital or a birth center and how involved are they in the labor process? Mm-hmm. So I remember doing, a, and all these questions came up because as a doula, I was seeing problems with this. So I remember doing a birth and she asked all the questions. She had her birth plan. And yeah. then the care provider didn't come for a very long time. And yeah. so she was working with the hospital staff. And that's good that we had the birth plan. So we at least could share that. But if you go through the trouble of making sure you're a good match, you want to make sure you you're know there. when to expect them. Because if they're yeah. like, I come at pushing, then you're like, okay, a lot of this is moot point. Or if they're like, I am there from as soon as you're in active labor. So again, it's about setting expectations and Mm -hmm. understanding what you're walking into and understanding the relationship. Yeah. That was a really surprising one for me with, I want to say it was my second daughter. I had a different doctor and they only came for the pushing. And I was like, where, where is he? Like, why is he not here? And I had, and you know, another thing I wanted to talk about, I was at a teaching hospital. Yes. So the New York hospitals are teaching hospitals. It was like, I was on display. I was, I mean, I had six different people try to take my blood out of my hand or put the, was it the IV? IV, Yeah. Yeah, That was my fourth child. And finally my husband stood up and like yelled at them. And he was like, get somebody experienced because I was sobbing, crying because they just kept poking my hand and you know, you're emotional and all the things. And um, they're like, we can't get the IV in. And he was like, stop having these training people come in. Well, can we address that for those listening? Yeah. If you're at a teaching hospital, again, most of the New York City hospitals are teaching hospitals. You can say no students. It might surprise them, but you have a right to say, I want as few people in the room, unless you have to be there, I don't want you in there because for the hormones to work well, for labor to go well, you need to have more privacy and be undisturbed. You shouldn't be. And I get it. I totally hear it. And comfortable. Yeah. And I get it. Like you're probably saying if you're a med student, but I need to practice. I get it. But maybe, but you also, as the person giving birth, deserve to have that privacy and that space to not be poked at. So it's kind of this catch 22. How do they get experience? But how do you have privacy? But some people are going to say, I'm fine with it. And some are going to be like, stay away. Yeah. And I think that, you know, thinking of my four births, like I was totally fine. My water broke on my first daughter. I went in and was just hanging out for quite a long time. And so that I was at a teaching hospital then, and I was like, oh, whatever with my son, we actually had a scheduled induction. And then I got Pitocin. I was super uncomfortable. I was cramping. Like I was just not in a good space. And then to get like poked over and over, I was like, I don't want that with this birth. And so I was really upset and it was just, it was a really upsetting situation. So I think it's fine to, to say, and we did eventually say, we don't want any more students coming in. And I can empathize with that because I used to be in a medical device sales. Mm -hmm. And I remember like I would teach, I would go to Stanford and UCSF, you know, these premier top hospitals in the country. And you think you're going to get a surgery and it's going to be the best of the best. Well, most of that surgery is done by a 
fellow. Right. And they're not even, they're not even, they haven't even really practiced on their own. And I just remember thinking, sitting in there and being like, Oh my gosh, like note to self, if I'm ever getting a surgery, I do not want anybody, but the surgeon working on it because this is sketchy, but they have to learn. And so you just, I guess, sometimes hope it's not learning on you. I always told my students and my doula clients that when they're getting an epidural, ask for the attendant. I mean, they're sticking a little needle and catheter near your, in like in your spinal area. And then if it's slightly to the left or slightly to the right, that medicine's going to bathe your spine. So I had a client one time, one side of her body was very numb and one side felt everything. So we needed them to readjust it. So again, I get it. You need to learn, but maybe not on your spine. Yeah, that that's one that's like, you know, lifelong damage kind of thing. That was I I and and I will say another one. And this was with my same son that I was like, get the teaching people out of here because they were giving um at the hospital circumcision. I was totally crazy. I said, I do not want any. And they're like, circumcisions are very. And I said, I already said, I don't want any teaching people. Like I want the person to do it. And they're like, they're very routine. They're very easy. And I was like, you are not hearing me. That was my fourth child. It was such a bad experience now in hindsight, looking at it. But I felt like I was like, there's just all these people that don't know what they're doing, working on my son, working on me. Like I I was, yeah, I didn't want that. Okay. On my fourth, this is, this is another funny thing. They asked if my husband wanted to deliver the baby. Like deliver the baby? Deliver the baby. Like pull the baby out. Okay. Oh, so like catch. Catch the baby. So the head was already out. The shoulders are out. He was like, just going like, to help yeah. slide Dad, you it out. Like, Got it. Do the last. And he was yeah. like, absolutely not. What do you, what do you think of that? I was like, you missed your big moment. What do you think of that? Oh, I think, I mean, if they feel great about it, sure. Cause the hard part's done. Once the shoulders are out. It, it to me is like a little tube of toothpaste. You like squeeze it and like it falls right out. So I, I've seen dads do that. I've seen moms reach down and pick their baby up and bring yeah. it to their chest. So sure. I mean, yeah. my husband did not to my, I honestly don't remember for all I know. He, I'm pretty sure with my daughter, I reached down and picked he her did. up because it was pretty he, quick. That's from your yoga poses. Well, I, yeah, I, I was a dancer. I'm pretty flexible. I can reach it down pictures. But um, but I was I was on my bed. I was on my side. With my son, I was so exhausted. I don't know how he got to my chest. Somebody put him there. I yeah. don't know who it was. It could have been my husband. It could have been the midwife. I yeah. have no idea how he got there. And from the husband's point of view, I know, I remember with my first, they were like, dad, come cut the umbilical cord. And he didn't even want to do that. I, he yeah. did, I remember he did do it, but he was like, oh, like kind of weirded out by it. I mean, do you feel like it's a bonding moment or it's just a whatever moment? I have no idea. I think it's a way to get the partner more involved. I don't think it's a bonding moment. Maybe yeah. it is. I can't speak for everybody. I think, yeah, I think it's an act of inclusion, but maybe some parents feel like, some dads or partners feel like this is really their way of, you know, supporting. I'm not sure. That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know how that got into our birth culture. I'm going to think about that. I'm actually going to put it out there and ask. Yeah. I'm going to ask people, but like, so if you had your partner cut the cord, why had they, what, what was the reasoning? How did they, I'm going to ask my husband too. I don't think he did any of that. I honestly do not remember. Well, and I think that's telling that you don't even remember, right? Like it's not this much. I, I do feel like I would have remembered if my husband delivered the baby. I, and I'm saying delivered. I mean like the final pull. Yeah. Uh, or I 
pulled the baby out. Like that seems, I, I remember watching on the Kardashians, Courtney Kardashian pulled her own baby out. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I just thought it was the craziest thing I had ever seen. I love all this advice. And really, I think the whole name of the game here is really just don't show up to your birth without asking anything, right? And if you can't ask every single one of these questions, like figure out what's most important to Absolutely. you. It feels rare these days that people just become pregnant. Usually there's some kind of planning involved and months of trying. And, you know, so there's definitely, this is, this is, that's a really great time to start thinking about it and really just educating yourself. And Absolutely. there's so much information out there. The book and your podcast will definitely put those below, but if people are trying to find you, where's all the places, Deborah, that you're hanging out? Oh gosh. Okay. It's straightforward. Prenatal yoga center. You can find me on my website, prenatal yoga center. I have a blog that is forever old. I started a long time ago. My podcast is there called yoga birth babies on Instagram. We started TikTok, although I have someone do it because there's only so much social media my brain can take. So we're on our prenatal yoga center, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, even Facebook, although I'm not super active there. Those are all the places. All the places. I love it. And you have a code for us. Okay. I actually have a free book for you. So I have an ebook discovering restful and restorative prenatal yoga. So you should have the link, I believe, and it'll be hopefully in the show notes. So it's a free book. Grab the free book and enjoy. Amazing. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.